Hello and welcome to edition number 1939 of the Whitney Talking News, which we're recording in the High Street Methodist Church of Whitney on Thursday the 24th of November, and I am Nigel James, and I edited this edition. Beside me at the recording controls we have Peter Brading, and this week we have items mainly from the Whitney Gazette. Our four readers this evening are Alison Granger, Debbie Diacon, David Cluley and John Ashwell. So let's have our first story from uh, Alison, which is about new homes in Hanborough. Yes, my headline is Permission for 150 Homes in Village at Bursting Point. Plans for 150 new homes on Blenheim Palace land have been approved. The outline application said it would include 50% affordable homes north of the Whitney Road on the western edge of Longhambra. Residents and councillors had been concerned about pressure on local services, such as the doctor's surgery and schools. Applicant Blenheim Estate Homes said the land provides an important opportunity to deliver a high-quality development in a sustainable location which currently suffers from significant housing need and poor affordability. It said it was committed to high-quality design, sustainability and biodiversity net gain, and the loss of a greenfield site was moderated by the fact the site is not of high landscape or biodiversity value and is not of the highest agricultural land value. Hanborough and Freeland Parish Councils objected, and 254 letters of objection were received. Resident Steve Hurst described Longhambra as full to bursting. District Councillor Lydia Arkievitska, representing Hanborough and Freeland Ward, spoke at the planning meeting where the application was approved by a majority of six to five with one abstention. She said... Hanborough has undergone rapid growth in recent years. Nearly 400 houses were built there since 2015, a 37% increase. Only 25 of these homes were in the local plan. Another 300 houses were built in the nearby villages of Freeland and North Lee. What concerns me is that this rapid growth was not accompanied by development of the necessary infrastructure. She said there were few trains to London and a half-hourly bus from Burford to Woodstock. But Hambra lost connection to Ensham and the centre of Freeland and there is no direct public transport to Oxford Parkway and North Oxford. Of the new surgery in Hambra Gate, which was funded by the developer, she said, They were very grateful for the new building, but at the same time frustrated that only after after only two years of moving in, they are over capacity. This means they're dividing rooms into two to provide more units to see p- patients. The school has been expanded and currently has space for an additional 100 pupils. Nevertheless, the current capacity is expected to be filled imminently due to the demographics of residents in the developments already built. Her main concern was collection of foul water. Just prior to the meeting, Thameswater confirmed the lack of capacity at Church Hambra Treatment Works and asked for a condition to be placed should the application be approved. West Oxfordshire District Council planning officers recommended provisional approval. 
Assessing the scheme in the round, on balance, the benefits of the proposal are considered to outweigh the harms, a report said. ...with housing, but on a slightly different note, about house repossessions. And this is going to be read by David. Almost two dozen more property per repossessions made. Sorry. Almost two dozen more claims to evict people from their homes in West Oxfordshire were made this summer than in 2021, figures show. Housing charity Shelter have accused the government of ignoring an unfolding crisis in the rental market, where prices are rising rapidly, after Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement revealed little help for private tenants. Ministry of Justice data shows 34 claims to repossess properties in West Oxfordshire were lodged by mortgage lenders and landlords between July and September. Of those, five were for homes owned by mortgage holders, while the rest were to evict tenants. It means there were 20 more claims in the latest quarter than over the same period in 2021, where 14 were submitted. Despite this rise, there were still fewer bids to remove people from their homes than before the pandemic in 2019. 53 claims were lodged between July and September that year. Reacting to the autumn statement announcement, Polly Neat, Shelter Chief Executive, said, There is a housing hole in this budget. Housing benefit remains frozen at 2020 levels, where private rents have been rising at record rates. She said, Increasing universal credit will help people pay food and fuel bills, but does not cover rents which are most people's biggest outgoing. Mr Hunt said he would monitor carefully the situation around mortgage repossessions. Our next story is about pre-Christmas festivities and is going to be read by Debbie. Yes, and the headline is Free Festive Fun as Children's Advent Fair Returns. Children can celebrate the beginning of the Christmas season with festive activities galore. Whitney children are invited to the return of the annual Children's Advent Fair, organised by Whitney Town Council, offering fun for free. Highlights include making reindeer food from oats, sprinkles and edible glitter and stamping your own wrapping paper. Children can make a gift bag to give as a Christmas present. There will be colour in character lollipops, decorating lollies with classic Christmas characters or youngsters can make their own jingle bell stick. Simply shake the stick for lovely tinkling bells, or paper craft Christmas ornaments for a creative way to dress up the family Christmas tree. There is also face painting and a reindeer trail with a prize draw at the end of it. Children will also have the opportunity to write a letter to Father Christmas, letting him know what they would like for Christmas, which can then be posted in the special post box. Once it has winged its way to Lapland and Santa has received it, each child will receive a personal reply. The Advent Fair will be held in the Corn Exchange, Market Square, Whitney, on Sunday, November 27th, between 11am and 4pm. Our next story has an egg flavour and is going to be read by John. Yes, it's headed, Angry Producer says avian flu is not causing the lack of eggs. An egg producer in West Oxfordshire says avian flu is not to blame for the current egg shortage. 
it is farmers going bankrupt. The shortage isn't due to bird flu, it's due to the farmers going bust, says James Lyle, who sells his Mayfield eggs from his farm at Barnard Gate. Farmers' feed costs have gone up 80%, and the cost of new hens is up 25%, and our electricity costs have gone up the same as everybody else's in the world. The UK and the EU is in the midst of the largest outbreak of avian flu on record, with 161 cases of the disease detected in poultry and captive birds last year, leading to the culling of 3.2 million birds. That compared to the previous record of 26 cases in 2020-21. But the UK government said the cold birds were a small proportion of the total production, which is about 20 million birds a week. Sainsbury's have introduced Italian eggs as an emergency measure, while last week a number of other supermarkets were imposing limits on the number of boxes shoppers can buy, citing the outbreak. But Mr Lyle said, when supermarkets have been gradually increasing the price of eggs, that has not been given back to the farmers. Every farmer is losing 30p on every dozen that they sell to the supermarket. We have explained to our customers we will be holding our prices because we are able to, because we have customers who have supported us all along the way. According to the consultancy ADAS, between January and November, supermarket prices rose by 33 pence for a box of large free-range eggs to an average of £2.67. Over the same priced Uh, Sorry, over the same period, farmers received a rise of 18p for a dozen on average. Mr Lyle said bird flu has taken about 1.7% of the UK flock size, but actually it's down 17%, and that's due to farmers going bust. That's 8 million eggs that are not being held, not being laid. And Sainsbury's seems to think putting Italian eggs on the shelves is the answer. Mr Lyle urged shoppers to buy local. He said there is an alternative in Oxfordshire, which is buying produce from a nearby farm. It takes 12 to 15 days to get eggs on the shelf in a supermarket, when we can get them to our customers in three days. Sainsbury's said, we are doing all we can to support our packers and producers as they work with the farmers. This support includes increasing the amount we pay for the eggs that we buy. Star Simon Cowell shakes up town as he picks up treats. Entertainment mogul Simon Cowell was back in Oxfordshire over the weekend. The TV talent show star visited Chipping Norton and took his son Eric to sample treats from milkshake shop Tickety Shake. The shop shared on Facebook, Look who stopped in yesterday to pay us a visit. Simon Cowell and Eric loved the Golden Buzz ER Shake, named after them. We are also grateful Amanda Holden let Simon know about the special shake. Thank you, Eric and Simon, for visiting and for your lovely support. Always means so much to us. Mr Cowell visited the store and Mr Sims' old sweet shop in August. At the time, Julia Cook, 
owner of Tickety Shake and neighbouring children's boutique Tickety Boo, said he was very happy to have his photo taken. He was extremely kind and lovely, polite and smiley, and he was very complimentary about my staff. He bought a vanilla shake for his son and some sweets and toys. I told the staff to offer it for free, but he refused and told the staff he wanted to pay. He added, she added, We've had David Cameron and Alex James in Tickety Shake a few times. We've had Amanda Holden in Tickety Boo before, and we've had Lydia Bright from TOWIE. MP seeks urgent meeting on hotels' asylum contract. An MP has said the lack of warning over the use of a hotel in Whitney to house people seeking asylum is not good enough and is seeking an urgent meeting with the Home Office. The situation was revealed when a customer suddenly had hundreds of pounds of Christmas bookings cancelled at the 115-room Oxford Whitney Hotel in Ducklington Lane. The hotel said it had agreed to help the Home Office as part of the UK's humanitarian commitment to help these desperately in need of some safety and security while waiting for the more permanent arrangements. Asylum seekers have been moved into the Holiday Inn Express at Oxford's Kassam Stadium. Conservative MP for Whitney, Ms Robert Courts, said he had asked for the meeting to have an opportunity to reflect legitimate concerns of Whitney residents. He said, While I understand the Home Office has a responsibility to support asylum seekers, I am concerned by the news that a hotel will be used for asylum accommodation and, like other local residents, have misgivings about the suitability of the site and the impact this decision will have on Whitney. There was no prior consultation with me or other local leaders, which is not good enough given the significant implication this decision has for our community. He added, There are many details which remain unclear. I have not yet been informed about the number of people we can expect in Whitney, whether the group will be all adult or will include children, or what countries the guests will have come from. West Oxfordshire District Council said it had no prior warning and was consulting with local support services. In a statement, the council said, The Home Office is organising its arrangement directly with the hotel, without any consultation with local councils. We are now working with local partners, including the police, the county council and asylum welcome to to look at what support is needed for the asylum seekers coming to the hotel and the local community. We are seeking more information from the Home Office on their plans and their expectations. But, it added... As a partnership, we have experience in providing support following the arrivals of refugees from Afghanistan and Ukraine over recent years and months. Asylum Welcome said he was absolutely right. Oxfordshire should be playing its part in giving accommodation support. Director Mark Goldring said, It's absolutely right that the Home Office get people out of Manston Migrant migrant Centre and in short-term hotels are probably the only answer. The real issue is how fast the Home Office can move them out of hotels and into something more suitable and longer term. Where we are troubled is that in Whitney and in Oxford is that arrangements were made without consultation. He said this undermined the local authorities' ability to prepare properly when it did not know when asylum seekers were coming, how many there would be. 
and he said the Home Office needed to move forward more sensibly and more collaborative in future. He added, in just about people arriving on small boats, the backlog has been building up for years. A high proportion of asylum seekers go on to get a positive decision and are told they can stay. If we can speed that up, people can get on with their lives. A Home Office spokesman said, The number of people arriving in the UK who require accommodation has reached record levels and has put our asylum system under incredible strain. The use of hotels to house asylum seekers is unacceptable. There are currently more than 37,000 asylum seekers in hotels, costing the UK taxpayer £5.6 million a day. The use of hotels is a short-term solution, and we are working hard with local authorities to find appropriate accommodation. They added that the Home Office does not comment on operational arrangements for individual sites used for asylum accommodation, but stated that the government does engage with local authorities as early as possible whenever sites are used for asylum accommodation. So this uh, article is entitled Tipsy Punch, Flawed Wedding Guest Friend. A self-confessed, quote, complete uh, expletive, end quote, left a friend requiring a hearing aid after he knocked him out with a single punch at a wedding. Both Nathan Warby and his victim were said to have been trying to break up a dispute in the early hours of May the 1st at the wedding reception at Merris Court near Chipping Norton. Mobile phone footage showed the moment when, amid raucous scenes outside the reception venue, 33-year-old Dad Warby swung a single punch at the other man. His victim was knocked to the ground. The fall fractured his skull left him with a bleed on the brain and caused him to lose his hearing. Warby initially walked away, but returned when he realised a man was unconscious on the ground. He was immediately contrite, Oxford Crown Court was told. When police officers arrived, he confessed to what had happened. He told detectives that he had been a, quote, complete expletive and had had too much to drink. He added that he was massively sorry and full of regret. Mitigating, Holly Newing said her client had written a letter of apology to the victim. The day of the wedding had been amazing, the defendant had said. He and the victim were having a laugh at the reception. However, when he was told that his mother was being attacked by the victim's wife, he became involved in the fracas. The defendant was said to have received minor injuries as a result of trying to separate the women. In an impact statement read to the court by prosecutor Stephen Molloy, the victim said the assault left him deaf and he was waiting for surgery to fit a hearing aid. He was unable to work for eight weeks. A mechanical maintenance engineer, his hearing loss had affected his ability to contribute in meetings and meant he was, quote, unable to fault-find engineering issues. I just want to be able to get back to how my life was, he said. Warby of Great Horwood near Milton Keynes pleaded guilty at the first hearing in the magistrate's court to causing grievous bodily harm. The court heard he had two previous convictions, but these were so old the judge said he would treat the defendant as a man of effectively previously good character. 
Eight character references had been written on his behalf and Warby had penned his own letter of remorse to the court. Recorder Geraint Jones, KC, sentenced him to eight months' imprisonment, suspended for a year and a half with a 100 hours of unpaid work, up to 10 rehabilitation activity requirement days and costs of £125. Man dies after a morning crash on Major Road. Mr Heading. A man died in a car crash on the A44 near Chipping Norton in the early morning. Thames Valley Police said that a silver Audi TT was involved in the collision at Cross Hands Hill at around 7.50am on Sunday. The driver, a 24-year-old man, died at the scene. Police have launched an appeal for witnesses to the crash. Sergeant James Sermon of the Joint Operations Unit for Roads Policing said, First and foremost, my thoughts are with the family and friends of the man who has tragically died as a result of this collision. His next of kin are being offered support at this extremely difficult time. I am appealing to anyone else who witnessed this collision to please come forward. I would also ask any motorist with dash cams to check any footage in case it may have captured something in the prelude to the crash or the crash itself that could assist with the investigation. Anyone with information can contact police by calling 101. And now it's quiz time. First, the answers to the questions set by Byron last week. Question 1. Who used to breed dormice as a tasty starter? And the answer is the ancient Romans. Question 2. In which country might you find a fried tarantula on the menu? And the answer is Cambodia. Question 3. Which fruit is banned on public transport in Hong Kong? Thailand and Japan because of its horrible smell and the fruit is a durian question four where in the world might you be offered a thousand year old egg the answer is China and you all know this one which animal is used to make haggis the answer is sheep Right, well, (laughs) that didn't go down terribly well. Let's on to this week's questions, which hopefully are easier, so no answering these, please. If the king is addressed as your majesty, how is a cardinal addressed? Question two. What is the only American state to start with P? P for Percy. Question three. In which country would you find Vesuvius? Question four. What name is given to the study of projectiles? And question five. From which fruit is the syrup grenadine distilled? And the answers will be given to you next week. And so we go on to our next story, which is about uh, a sustainably fuelled aircraft and is going to be read by Alison. UK's first 100% sustainably fuelled aircraft flies out. The UK's first waste-fuelled aircraft, piloted by the RAF, took to the skies over the county using 100% sustainable fuel in a breakthrough moment for aviation. The RAF Voyager, 
the military equivalent of an Airbus A330, used waste-based fuels, including used cooking oil, for its flight from RAF Bryce Norton near Carterton. Sustainable aviation fuels, known as SAFs, have the potential to reduce carbon emissions by up to 80%, according to the RAF. It is hoped their usage will propel the RAF closer to its net zero target by 2040, while reducing the reliance on global supply chains. As well as being a UK first, last week's flight was also the first in the world to use fully sustainable fuel for a military aircraft of its size. Defence Minister Baroness Goldie described it as a breakthrough moment for the RAF. She said the Royal Air Force has flown the UK's first military air transport flight using 100% sustainable aviation fuel on one of their operational Voyager aircraft. They should be rightly proud of this achievement. It's a breakthrough moment for the RAF and an exciting development for the Ministry of Defence. Through the RAF's pioneering spirit, expertise and partnership with UK industry, British science and engineering is leading the way in improving operational resilience and developing future operating capability in a climate-changed world. The flight was led by Airbus Defence and Space Project pilot Jesus Ruiz and Chief Test Pilot for Rolls-Royce Andy Roberts. It was a joint endeavour between the RAF, Ministry of Defence, Airbus, Air Tanker and Rolls-Royce with the fuel from AirBP. Right, news in brief. Where to access help in cost of living struggles. A list of all the benefits, financial relief schemes, support groups and other avenues to explore in the cost of living crisis are on the West Oxfordshire District Council's website. Andy Graham, leader of the council, said... We understand that many across West Yorkshire are struggling to make ends meet. A lot of support is available both nationally and locally that you might be able to access to help during those challenging times. Schemes provided by the Council include Council Tax Support Scheme and Help for People on Housing Benefit who cannot pay their rent. Many people aren't aware that they can claim this support so please do take time to check what you might be eligible for and let others know that they may be eligible for help, he said. Go to help if you are struggling with living costs at westoxen.gov.uk. My next story, the Ukraine bus drivers. Stagecoach is to hold a bus driver recruitment day aimed at Ukrainian refugees. The event, organised in partnership with the Department of Work and Pensions, is being held at Stagecoach West's Bristol Depot on November the 23 for rolls across the country. Drivers are paid a salary of £13.75p per hour, Monday to Friday, £14 per hour on Saturdays and £15.70 per hour on Sundays and are guaranteed a minimum of 30 hours, 38 hours per week with the opportunity to work overtime. Rachel Geliamassi, Managing Director of Stagecoach West, said, We're delighted to be part of this initiative, which not only supports Ukrainians, 
but could very well help us to find some much-needed team members. We pride ourselves on a friendly, inclusive working environment and welcome applications from all. We have a really close-knit team in Bristol with plenty of friends, friendly faces to welcome you. So the next article is entitled Bin Lorry Name Thrill for Survivor Josiah. A bin lorry has been named Josiah after a five-year-old cancer survivor who is obsessed with trains and trucks. Josiah from Woodstock was thrilled when a bin lorry with his name on the front was presented to him by Oxford City Council. The Woods family travelled to the West Oxfordshire District Council Waste Depot, where Josiah's bin lorry was unveiled, the same one that will travel past his house on its weekly route. The family then accompanied Josiah as he hitched a ride in his bin lorry with operations manager Michael Menny behind the wheel. Josiah's two-year-old brother Henry and four-year-old sister Beatrice shared in the excitement and the day ended with a bin lorry quiz which allowed Josiah to show off his extensive bin lorry knowledge. Josiah, who was just five years old at the time, was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer, lymphocyte-predominant non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, LPNHL, in February 22, and has endured intense chemotherapy. The fact the cancer was rare made it even worse, said Mum Emma. Only 200 people are diagnosed with LPNHL each year. We were in the process of moving to Australia for Josiah's dad's work, which had to stop due to Josiah's diagnosis. Due to the severity of Josiah's condition, the family were invited to choose a wish from Make-A-Wish UK, a charity in the UK which grants life-changing wishes to critically ill children. Josiah wished for a freight train drive. In September, Josiah and family travelled to the freight liner Maritime Terminal in Southampton, where they were welcomed by G&W Freight Liner. The family then enjoyed a tour of the grounds before the unveiling of Josiah's freight train, which was fittingly named Josiah's Wish in his honour. The locomotive was then shunted up and down the tracks by Josiah coming along for the ride. After being shown around the facility and shunted along the tracks in Josiah's wish, the family ended the day with pizza and cupcakes. Throughout the day, Josiah beamed from ear to ear as he proudly wore his own personalised train commander hat. Emma said, Josiah has been obsessed with trains, freight trains and bin lorries for a very long time. He's got a lot of Lego, including freight trains, which was really good for him when he was in hospital. So it all started from there, really. His wish was an incredible way to say well done. The charity has now launched its Christmas appeal. Please visit it at www.make-a-wish.org.uk And there's a lovely picture of... um, Josiah and his younger sister and brother standing in front of his bin lorry with the uh, manager who drove him and um, it'll be going past his house every week. This is about a scheme for green energy plant to heat 7,000 homes.
A plant that would uh, use agricultural waste to create enough energy to heat around 7,000 homes could be built in Oxfordshire. Acorn Bioenergy, Bioenergy has written to Whitney residents informing them of the plan to build an aerobic digestion plant on land to the east of the town next to the A40. Anaerobic digestion is a biological process where a mixture of microbes break down agricultural materials into an airtight tank to produce biogas. It said, Acorn Bioenergy is committed to providing renewable carbon-negative energy for the UK by unlocking the full potential of biomethane production. It will hold a consultational event for people to view the proposals, ask Acorn any questions and leave feedback. Its website says, We will be looking to submit a planning application for the anaerobic digestion plant to West Oxfordshire District Council in the coming months. The site is roughly 6.2 hectares of agricultural land north of South Lee Road and south of the A40, approximately 1.2 kilometres east of Whitney. Acorn Bioenergy said it's prioritised sites with good access to farms that can provide high-quality agricultural waste, good access to the strategic road network, and ones that will have a minimal visual impact on neighbours. The consultation event is at South Lee Village Hall on November 29th from 3.30 until 7pm. Right, and now we come to Editor's Choice. And this is in two parts this week. First of all, uh, the random items which occurred on this day. Firstly, in 496, Anastasius II succeeded Gelasius I as Catholic Pope. I'm sure you all remember that. In 1434, the River Thames in London froze over. In 1477, the first known book in English was printed and published by William Caxton. In 1639, the first observation of the transit of Venus by Jeremiah Horrocks and William Crabtree helped establish the size of the solar system. In 1642, the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman discovers Van Diemen's Land, which is later called Tasmania. In 1850, Alfred Tennyson becomes the British Poet Laureate to succeed William Wordsworth. In 1859, English naturalist Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species, Radically Changing the View of Evolution. In 1861, the first petroleum shipment of 1,329 barrels was from the US to Europe. In 1940, the Luftwaffe bombed Bristol city centre, killing 200 people in the first German raid on the city. And in 1974, the most complete early human skeleton, Lucy Australopithecus, was discovered in the middle awash of Ethiopia's Afar Depression. And now the second part comes is an article from a book by J. John called What's the Point of Christmas? And this bit is called Putting the Record Straight. Before going further, let's put the record straight about the date of our celebrations. The early church did not know the exact date of Jesus' birth, neither was there any annual celebration of the event. 
The Bible tells us that while shepherds watch their flocks by night, Jesus was born. So we know it wasn't in December. The shepherds and their sheep would have frozen in the Palestinian winter. The first evidence of the celebration of Jesus Christ's birth on the 25th of December is found in a Roman document dated AD 336. The date was chosen as a Christian takeover of the Roman festival, celebrating the unconquerable sun. The apparently dying sun began to increase its sunlight on the 25th of December. And when an early pope sent St Augustine to convert the barbaric Anglo-Saxon tribes in northern Europe, he urged his missionary to fit Christian celebrations around local traditions. And here too, Augustine found midwinter revelries lasting 12 days. Our word Yuletide is derived from the name of an Anglo-Saxon god, and again the celebrations concerned the rebirth of the sun. But Augustine told them of the true God become man. So, as in Rome, instead of worshipping the sun, Christians began to use the festival to celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ and to worship instead the unconquerable sun. Let's also put the record straight about the real meaning of Christmas. Christmas is about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue us from the mess we were in. And that's quite a statement. But we only need to look around today to see what we have got, have, where we have problems in the world. Socially, we are in one of the most violent periods in our history. It's estimated that some 25 million people have died in war since World War II alone, and that the total of this century exceeds 100 million. Domestically, family life is in crisis everywhere. In the West, one out of three marriages break up, Two children a week die at the hands of their own parents, and juvenile crime is on the increase. And individually, for many people, they have the growing feeling of insignificance. Mother Teresa has said, the greatest disease today is not starvation, but loneliness. And now on to the deaths listed in the uh, Whitney Gazette, and there are only three this week. And the first is Graham Evans, who died on the 12th of November this year, aged 82, and he came from Carterton. The second was uh, Elizabeth Williams, who died on the 15th of November, aged 77 years, who came from Cogs. And the third one is Father Ian Turnbull Kerr, who died on the 5th of November, aged 80 years, and is described as a much-loved parish priest of Burford, and he will be sadly missed by all who knew him. Our condolences go to friends and family of the deceased. And on a lighter note, we have one birthday. Uh, our reader, uh, sorry, listener, Roy Saunders, is, uh, his birthday is on the 27th, Sunday, and we wish him a happy birthday for Sunday. Also, uh, don't forget the Whitney Torch Fellowship for the Visually Impaired meets on the first Saturday of every month at two o'clock in the Welcome Church High Street. New members are very welcome and the contact number is 01993-891-639. And don't forget at the end of this um, programme to listen to the uh, radio listings and the audio described TV which are supplied to us by TNF. And now back to our normal articles, 
And our next article is about throwing your electronics into the river and is going to be read by Alison. And the headline, yes, is indeed, Throw Your Electronics in the Thames, paedophile told. A sex offender who sent filthy messages to what he thought was a 15-year-old girl was told by a judge to throw his electronic devices in the Thames. Joshua Wingfield Digby, 23, exchanged the explicit missives with the underage girl online and uh, was trying to arrange to meet her for sex. But the girl with whom the Whitney man was playing out his fantasies was in fact an undercover police officer. And by talking to the fictional child, Wingfield Digby was in breach of a sexual risk order imposed two months earlier, banning him from communicating with under-16s. He was remanded in custody, and despite pleading guilty at an early stage, had to wait until this week to learn his fate. First, the barrister strike delayed his case for months before the judge was invited to adjourn for psychiatric reports. Wingfield Digby, who was released from custody on bail last month pending sentence, was said to have significant learning difficulties. Judge Michael Gledhill, KC, sentencing him at Oxford Ground Court on Wednesday, said the public would be better protected by Wingfield Digby getting help to stop him offending in the future. Imposing a three-year community order, the judge said, My advice to you would be any electronic device that you have should be thrown into the River Thames. I don't mean that literally, but you've got the gist of what I'm saying. You can't trust yourself with electronic devices. He warned Wingfield Digby that if he breached his community order, he was looking at a jail sentence with a starting point of four to five years' imprisonment. Judge Gledhill noted that the defendant had real difficulties in terms of his learning development. That said, you're perfectly capable of working, as you know. You're perfectly capable of living on your own, which you have done in the past, he added. The problem is that you have this unhealthy interest in girls much younger than you, and despite what everybody has tried to do in the past, you've been unable to put aside that interest in young girls. If the opportunity arises, you don't hesitate to take it, and the public need to be protected. Wingfield Digby of Assel Lee near Whitney admitted breaching his sexual risk order, attempting to arrange the commission of a child sex offence, attempting to engage a child in sexual communication, and attempting to cause a child to engage in sexual activity. As part of the order, Wingfield Digby must complete 150 hours of unpaid work, wear a GPS tag for six months, do rehabilitation work with the probation service, and pay £500 in costs. Oh, now some good news. Salon 2's company wins business award. A hairdressing salon, which has been cutting locks in Whitney for 30 years, has won a top business award. Two's company Hair and Beauty on Church Green was nominated in the South East category of England's Business Awards. Covering all of the counties of the South East, the winners can go on to compete in the National Grand Final in Birmingham in November. Owner Alan Heritage said the results were based on client feedback and votes, mystery shoppers and conversations with the organisers. 
We got down to the last few salons and were invited to the final in Guildford last week, where, incredibly, we won. It was a just reward for years of dedication and hard work. The award was collected by Toby and Taya from the salon. Mr Heritage said, We are now in our 31st year as Two's company. I genuinely think we won because as a team, we go that extra mile. Regular clients have returned for years, but new clients get looked after just the same. I want clients to have a happy, positive experience, and hopefully they'll want to return. He added, I also think that the position of the salon is fantastic, as we have a great view onto Church Green. And this article is entitled, Twitter Reports Trolley Breeding Programme. A disgruntled Whitney resident has created a Twitter account to document the status of several trolleys which have been dumped in the River Windrush. The Sainsbury's trolleys are reported to have been sitting in the River Windrush in Whitney for a number of weeks, despite locals reaching out to both the supermarket chain and West Oxfordshire District Council to have them removed. The tongue-in-cheek account, aptly named at Trolley Windrush, was created in response to the lack of action by the organisations and has been documenting the ongoing status of two waterlogged trolleys. Reaching out to Sainsbury's and the council again on Tuesday, November 15th, the account wrote, Can you guys get together and remove this blight? It's very embarrassing, especially as we are now having more rain and it will certainly not help the flow of the river. One lady has suggested she retrieves them, which could be quite dangerous. Other Whitney residents have shared pictures of the trolleys on social media, as well as more sarcastic quips about the situation. Dan Weimer posted a picture of another trolley left on the side of the path in Henry Box School playing fields. Stumbled across a relative of at Trolley Windrush today. The At Sainsbury's Wild Trolley Breeding Programme appears to be going well in Whitney, he tweeted. And there's a picture of a trolley on its side in the river, which is a bit sad. And now we have a piece entitled Alfie the Psychic Alpaca Predicted an England Defeat. A psychic alpaca predicted that both England and Wales would both lose their World Cup games on Monday. Alfie, who lives on Fairytale Farm near Chipping Norton, appeared on ITV's This Morning with owner Nick Leister and was asked to pick between a feeder decorated with the UK flag and another one with the Iranian flag. He later did the same test with the Welsh and US flags. Presenters Holly Willoughby and Peter, uh, Philip Schofield moaned at Alfie as he revealed England will lose 3-0 against Iran and the US team would beat Wales 1-0. Alfie actually returned to the feeder with the Iranian flag for a second and third time. Does that mean 3-0? Holly asked. Things aren't looking great for England. But Phil pointed out that Alfie did not have a massive track record. Owner Mr Leister said he was fairly confident that Alfie knew what he was doing. He added added that the animal can see through people and has a knowing look that tells you, I know a little bit more than you do. However, 
England beat Iran 6-2 <laughs> and Wales played out a one-all draw with the US team. It's not often we have an and finally, but uh, surprisingly this week in the Whitney Gazette there were two letters from people in Whitney itself. And the first one is headed sitcom of farcical 20 mile an hour speed signs decision and is from a Mr Beatty. It says, I refer to your article in this week's Whitney Gazette. Regarding the statement of Dr Malin made about not being consulted, then he should have been aware of OCC's intention to take a second swing at Whitney. I don't feel that they have finished with us yet after the stupid uh, closure of the high street. I did fill out the online consultation and objected to the limits. Well, the widespread use of 20-mile signs in Whitney. One of my comments was that if drivers had no intention of obeying a 30-mile-an-hour limit, then why would they suddenly have a change of mind and do 20 miles an hour? The fact that I, along with quite a few others who had similar views, have now been overruled by a few who feel that their judgment is far superior than anyone else's, Despite the objections outweighing the uh, implementation of these limits, I did watch the recorded sitcom from the chamber when this was decided and could feel more than my blood boil. What's the point of a public consultation if they just ignore the view and did exactly what they wanted? Many more people should have stood up and voiced their opinion to add weight to the argument. I am, like many others, in favour of lower speed limits where there is seen to be a need for such i.e. hospitals, schools, nurseries, care homes in the, or town centre, and other such things. If you place a speed limit where drivers see no obvious reason for it, they will ignore it and do what they feel, feel like. I know the way things like this work, as I was part of the Road Safety Department at OCC a number of years ago. One of the worst groups of people were the parish councils, as they just wanted everything. The fact that TVP have agreed with the limits is something they have, they have to, but their way of objecting is to say that they can't enforce them due to staffing or cost issues. There have been a number of unnecessary fatalities on Whitney's roads over the years, but some of these incidents have been caused by additional influences rather than just going over 30. The twisted, misguided ideology that OCC have about Whitney is only going to blight the whole of the county at some point. As far as solving problems, it will either increase or create more. The thinking is that this will get more people to either walk, cycle or do something other than drive, which is ridiculous. No one is going to do much more than they are doing now, certainly not the masses of drivers on the school run. The traffic along the main routes um, in, into Whitney is now pretty much consistent at certain times caused by these new limits as we all crawl along. Which brings me to my last couple of points. The actual sign placement farce must have been handed out to a company with zero clue about doing the job. They must have been paid a right good whack as well. The cost of this mess, eight million, is something I find totally unacceptable at this time. In the near future, I will expect OCC to be crying for more money to help areas that should have been a priority way before this monumental mess. 
They should hang their heads in shame and be in the same room to explain this, the reason to people who have been told their services have been cut, as they don't have sufficient money, because Whitney now has the speed limits and a massive collection of signs to prove it. Nothing will change, and common sense will not prevail in this case. Robert Beatty. And the second letter, which is a short one, says... Whitney residents did not choose the 20-mile-an-hour scheme. It was all done by the council. There are several roads that have 20 and 30 signs up, so the council should have checked them before imposing this stupid idea. Do you think the council will supply grazing land for the horses we might need in the future when they change it to a horse and cart only? And that's from a Mrs Smith. Well, that's all we have time for, so please remove the memory sticks from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us. And please put these in the pillar box rather than taking them to the post office as they stick all sorts of nasty stickers all over them. Please do this as soon as we, um, you can as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. If you wish to contact us, simply put a slip of paper in the pouch and we will then telephone you. So it only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette for the stories we've used tonight. And our thanks to our technical expert, um, um, Peter Brading. <laughs> Sorry, Peter, about that. <laughs> our copiers who have been Angela James and Dorothy Allen. And our volunteers who will be checking, um, uh, checking the pouches and repacking them with memory sticks, who will be Ian Rose and Mike Herbert. So it only remains for me to thank our four readers, Alison Granger, Debbie Diacon, David Cluley and John Ashwell. And I'm sure we would all like to say goodbye. And so until our next edition, goodbye. goodbye. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, November 26th. And sport, of course, is currently dominated by the 2022 Football World Cup in Qatar. And each day on Radio 5 Live, there's an hour-long look ahead to the coming matches. The episode World Cup 2022 is at 9 o'clock on Radio 5 Live on Saturday. There is full coverage as well as Five Live on Talk Sport if you'd prefer every single match you'll be able to listen to. The drama at three o'clock on Saturday on Radio 4, away from the football, is Oliver, Lagos to London, Aisha Menon's radical updating of Charles Dickens' novel Oliver Twist. The story begins in Nigeria where a ten-year-old, Ollie, plays with his best friend Mina. The next day the oil company comes to take their land and when the villagers fight back, many are killed, leaving Ollie and Mina orphaned. On Radio 3 at 6.30, Opera on 3, a new production of Britain's The Rape of Lucretia, recorded earlier this week at London's Covent Garden's Royal Opera House. A grim story set in Rome, 500 BC. While her husband, the Roman general Colantinus, is away, Lucretia is raped by Prince Tarquinus. The following day, she takes her life. On Radio 4 at 8pm, Archive on 4 looks at Franklin D. Roosevelt's speech, delivered in January 1941. 
about the four freedoms he believed to be vital for the post-war world. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear and freedom from want. An examination of its immediate impact and its far-reaching consequences. It's followed at nine o'clock on Radio 4 by another episode of No Place But The Water, entitled Ghosts of the Future. Jess has seen a ship approaching the island, but worse than that, those aboard have seen her. On to Sunday, November 27th. Lauren Laverne's castaway on this week's Desert Island Discs is Australian film director Baz Luhrmann. Tune in to Radio 4 at 11.15. The drama at three on Radio 4 is Working Titles, Microsurfs, Theo Toxvig Stewart's dramatisation of Douglas Copeland's novel about working culture in the early years of the 1990s technology boom. An employee in the software industry is in desperate need of something new in his boring routine when along comes the chance to launch his own start-up company. Now you're asking, with Marion Keyes and Tara Flynn, this week at the Workplace Crush. Humorous tips on fancying your boss, regretting joining a book club and becoming convinced your dog hates you. It's on Radio 4 at 7.15 on Sunday night. Followed by another episode of Voices in the Valley, the midst of an unexpectedly fertile summer in Barabek, a childless couple make an agonising decision. 8 o'clock, Radio 2. Sunday night is music night. Malcolm Edmondston conducts the BBC Concert Orchestra in his 60th anniversary celebration of Motown, featuring covers of hits by The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson and The Miracles, Stevie Wonder, Martha and The Vandellas and many, many more. Well, finally for Sunday, November 27th at 11.30pm on Radio 3, Slow Radio, a moving home. A journey via the narrowboat home of composer and lutenist Augustine Cornwall Irvin, along London's Regent Canal. Hear the sounds of the creak of stretching rope, the push of the engine, via the calls of moorhens and human passers-by, to the mefluous slaps of water at the edge of the boat. And to programmes then that are broadcast each day, Monday to Friday, provoked the first culture war, with Virginia Woolf defending the high culture. And on Radio 4 at 9.45, rounding off Saturday, the series of linked short stories, Life at Absolute Zero. This week's episode, House Room, focuses on retired driving instructor Terry. Going through his late mother's belongings in his garage, he finds a battered yellow suitcase, whose contents take him by surprise. Sunday, October 23rd, and Radio 4 Extra at 9am, is the inimitable Jeeves, Richard Bryce and Michael Horden, starring the adaptation of P.G. Woodhouse's The Purity of the Turf. Also on Radio 4 Extra at 10am, and it is repeated in the evening at 9pm, you can hear an archive edition of Desert Island Discs from 1974, when the castaway was the brilliant actor James Stewart. It's the first part of a two-part drama on Radio 4 at 3 o'clock. Miss Nobody is a musical adaptation of Ethel Carney's 1913 novel following the lives of two working women, a shop worker and a mill worker, in 1911 Lancashire as they search for something better. 4.30 on Radio 4, Reading the Air, follows naturalist Chris Yates as he searches the skies for a sight of the elusive wintering hen harrier stalking along a wind-whipped hillside and through tree-chattering woods on the Dorset-Wiltshire border. And the last in the series on Sunday, the performance of my life, on Radio 4 at 7.45pm, Land of My Fathers. 
1930, in a drafty chapel schoolroom in the Rhondda Valley, American social activist, actor and singer Paul Robeson. In the 1996 murder of a barmaid in St Andrews, features on a true crime podcast, Detective Karen Pirry heads up the cold case investigation. On BBC Two at Nine is Simon Reeves' South America. Simon travels from Peru to Bolivia via the Andes, starting in the world-famous ruins of Machu Picchu. Have you been watching Bloodlands? Well, part two is on BBC One at 9pm. Paul have answered prayer from a million bricks on a site in the West Midlands. Will his hopes be realised? The drama on Monday at 2.15 on Radio 4 is The Other Tchaikovsky, the story of self-confessed outlaw and villain, activist, fraudster, lesbian, club owner and visionary Chris Tchaikovsky, told in the words of those who knew her and voiced by actors. Followed at three on Monday on Radio 4 by a new series of Nature Table, Sue Perkins hosts the nature-themed panel show from the Eden Project. At four o'clock on Radio 4, the Norwegian Hancock, Paul Merton investigates the success of Norway's most successful comedy, The Misadventures of Marvi Flechner's a character based on the UK's own Tony Hancock. Radio 3 at 7.30, rounding off Monday, Radio 3 in concert, recorded at Radio France Paris in October, with Julia Fisher on violin and the French National Orchestra, conducted by Christian Massalaru. Tuesday, November 29th, the drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 is Blue Thunder, a gripping family drama about lives spinning out of control. In small-town Ireland, a father and his two adult sons are holed up in a minibus for the night. There's no escape when the home truths start flying. Costing the Earth at 3.30 on Radio 4 looks at where the Conservative Party stands on the environment after months of chaos. The future on climate policies is uncertain. Followed at 4 on Radio 4 by Casting a Wider Net. Very few of the people going out to sea to fish for a living are women. Emily Kempson meets the UK's youngest ever apprentice skipper, Isla Gale, from the Isle of Man, and follows her as she prepares for a trip north to fish for scallops. Four Nations, Four Schools is at 8 o'clock on Radio 4, in which Laura McKinnery explores the different education systems in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. And as it's Tuesday, it's followed at 8.40 by In Touch with Peter White. Wednesday, November 30th, 9am, Radio 4, a new series of The Wreath Lectures. Nigerian writer Chimamanda Ngonzi Adichie gives a lecture on freedom of speech in the modern age. Cancel culture and wokeness have changed society, and while there's still the freedom to offend, Adichie asks at what point is the line drawn to say someone has gone too far? final part of a Charles Paris mystery, Dead Room Farce, starring Bill Nighy, is at 11.30 on Radio 4. The cast members seem to have secrets, leaving actor-come-amateur sleuth Charles having to determine who would go as far as murder to protect themselves. Drama on Radio 4 at 2.15 is good enough. Christine has a lot on her plate with her elderly mum and dad, especially considering one is a party animal who thinks the world revolves around her. 8.15 on Radio 4, a new series of The Moral Maze, the weekly debate on a moral issue behind a story in the week's news. And on Radio 3, free thinking at 10pm, rounding off Wednesday, ahead of next week's announcement at Tate Liverpool of the winner of this year's Turner Prize, Catherine Fletcher leads a discussion on this year's four finalists. Plus there's news of an exhibition about seeing in plain sight at the Welcome Collection in London.
on to Thursday, December 1st. May I be the first to wish you happy Christmas. At 11am on Radio 4 comes Crossing Continents, which this week looks at Putin's mobilisation of thousands of young men from the far-flung towns and villages of Siberia, who must fight and kill Ukrainians in a conflict few really understand, and even fewer dare discuss. Drama on Radio 4 at 2.15 is Because I'm a Mother. An artist takes a once-in-a-lifetime chance to create a show in New York about motherhood, but must leave her baby son behind in the UK for ten weeks with her partner, putting a strain on the couple's relationship. It's followed at three o'clock on Radio 4 by Open Country. Helen Mark is at Morn Park in County Down. Woodland there has been in private hands for centuries, but it's being opened up to the public. And rounding off Thursday at 10pm on Radio 3, Free Thinking focuses on the sci-fi franchise Star Trek. Matthew Sweet discusses political aspects of the original 66-69 to TV series, which featured the first interracial kiss on American television and an internationalist cast of characters. And we round off the week with Friday, December 2nd. Another chance to hear an episode of The Reunion, first broadcast in 2013 on the occasion of the fifth anniversary of Doctor Who. Sue McGregor's guests involved in the very first episode of the Cult TV programme. The director, Waris Hussein, only 24 at the time, remembers TV cameras being bigger than the Daleks. Tune in to Radio 4 Extra at 11am. The drama at 2.15 on Radio 4 is Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell Firewall, a dramatisation of a book by James Swallow inspired by an action-adventure video game. Radio 3 in concert at 7.30 comes from the London's Royal Festival Hall and features one of Vaughan Williams' most celebrated works, Serenade to Music, and Tibbet's secular oratorio, A Child of Our Time. To Radio 4 at 9 o'clock, an omnibus edition of Past Forward a Century of Sound. Greg Jenner captures a century of British life as he randomly selects 100 years of the BBC's archives. What do these recordings tell us about the society of today? And as it's Friday... As it's the end of the week, why not relax, sit back and enjoy Margarita Taylor's Smooth Classics from 10 o'clock on Classic FM. That's it. Thank you to Angela for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable one of radio listening. Hello, this is John from Otter Talking News, selecting and reading my choice of audio-described television programmes for the week commencing Saturday the 26th of November and ending Friday 2nd of December 2022. December, how did that happen? So what's on offer on Saturday the 26th? There's some football event on in Qatar. Oh, it's the World Cup, which has messed up the daytime schedules of the main channels. On BBC Two, there's Tom Gerridge's Top of the Shop at 11.30am, Meat producers compete for a place in the final. Then still on BBC Two at 12.30, Britain's Secret Seas, looking at archaeological excavations of a 17th century ship. On ITV3 at 8.55am and 10.55am, there are two episodes of A Touch of Frost. In the first, the detective investigates a robbery at a local casino. Then in the second, an unwelcome guest infuriates Frost. At 6pm on the Drama Channel is The Broken Wood Mysteries. An avid cyclist suffers a massive coronary at the top of a local mountain. Still on the Drama Channel, but at 8pm, Shakespeare and Hathaway investigate why allotment holders are being evicted. Castle Howard Through the Seasons is on Channel 4 at 8.25pm. Today it's autumn, and the estate is host to the International Sheepdog Trials. 
Princess Anne is due to attend, but then the Queen is taken ill at Balmoral. Casualties on BBC One at 9.25. Stevie realises she's up against Ethan for the Jack Naylor Award, but her opportunity is jeopardised by a patient. Let's have a look at Sunday the 27th. Homes Under the Hammer is on BBC One at 10.30am, with properties in London, Carlisle and Torquay. This is followed by Bargain Hunt, still on one, at 11. They're in Peterborough. Mary Berry's Country House Secrets is on BBC Two at 11.30. Today she's in Schoon Palace. This is followed on BBC Two at 12.30 with Recipes That Made Me. Natasha Katoni discovers family recipes from Bangladesh. On Channel 4 at 8pm is Escape to the Chateau. There's cause for celebration as the peach tree in the wall garden is finally fruiting after eight long years. Also eight is the final part of the Larkins on ITV. Norma reveals that Pop was set up, so Ma plans a sting operation to get her revenge. There's a choice between BBC One and Two at 9.15. On one is part five of SAS Rogue Heroes. Sterling leaves Paddy Main in charge while he heads off on a raid along with the Prime Minister's son. Or on two, Simon Sharma's History of Now. In this new series, Simon looks back over his lifetime at the vital power of culture in shaping defining issues. He begins with Picasso's painting of Guernica, showing the horror of a bombing of a town during the Spanish Civil War. The late film on BBC Two at 10.15 is Mogul Mowgli. After spending a few years in New York, the up-and-coming rapper Zed returns to London. When he develops a debilitating illness, he must re-evaluate his career and his relationship with his family. Here's now a look at programmes that are on at the same time each weekday. And all the following are on BBC One. Homes on the Hammer at 11.15am every day. Bargain Hunt at 12.15, but only Tuesday till Friday. Doctors at 1.45, again Tuesday till Friday. Moving to ITV at 2pm, Dickinson's Real Deal is only on on Monday and Wednesday. And at ITV 3 at 6pm, each evening is Heartbeat. All the soaps are on the move due to the football. I'll let you know each day when EastEnders, Corrie and Emmerdale are on. Hollyoaks seems to be in its usual place on Channel 4. Looking now at programmes on Monday the 28th of November, how about starting the evening on the west coast of the USA? Tonight's Great American Journey is on BBC4 at 7 and Michael Portillo travels from San Francisco to Sausalito in California. He starts by riding a cable car along the streets of San Francisco. MasterChef The Professionals continues on BBC1 at 8pm and it's the semi-finals. The heat is on as the final ten are asked to create a show-stopping dish based around their favourite food memory. Also 8 but on Channel 4, The Secrets of the Middle Isle. Denise Van Outen reveals how Lidl and Aldi exploit customers' fears of missing out with the products they place in the middle aisles of their stores. On BBC One, The Pact concludes at 9pm. Beth and Joe get closer to figuring out what happened at the wedding. Also at 9, but on BBC Two, is a new series of Trailblazers, a Rocky Mountain road trip. Ruby Wax, Melanie Brown and Emily Atak follow in the footsteps of Isabel Bird 
a Yorkshire-born explorer who rode 800 miles alone through the Rocky Mountains. Now for the soaps. EastEnders is on for an hour at 7. Corrie is also on for an hour, but at 9.15pm, and Emmerdale is not on today. Now on to Tuesday the 29th of November. At ten past nine, BBC Two finds out What Do We Do in the Shadows? A comedy about a group of vampires in New York. The vampires enlist the services of a local romancer. At 9.15 on Channel 4, Miriam and Alan are lost in Scotland and beyond, but possibly they're about to be found in this the final episode of this series. They're definitely beyond today, as they are at a canine spa and healing centre in Los Angeles, and they travel to Las Vegas for a cabaret show to remember. At 9.30 on BBC Two, the final Louis Theroux interviews. This time it's Rita Ora. Louis meets Rita in her father's London pub and asks about her family and their arrival from Kosovo in 1990 and the intense media scrutiny of her personal life. Also at 9.30 but on BBC One, there's a new series of The Traitors. 22 strangers arrive at a Highland castle to play the ultimate reality game of detection, backstabbing and trust. Three of the group are assigned as traitors and they must pick off their fellow contestants one by one, while the others, the faithful, must unmask the traitors and remove them from the game. This programme continues at the same time in the same channel on BBC One tomorrow and Thursday. And now the soaps. EastEnders is not on today. Emmerdale's on at 730 and Corrie follows at 8. On to Wednesday the 30th, and at 9 on More 4, Griff's Canadian Adventure. Comedian Griff Reese jones visits the world's second largest country, and today he's in Ontario, and he also visits the Niagara Falls. The Ice Cream Wars concludes on BBC Two at 10 past 9. The documentary picks up in 1984 with the investigation into a fire which killed six members of the Doyle family, and resulted in one of the biggest trials in Scottish history. At nine on Channel 4 is Grand Design's House of the Year. Today a focus on buildings that pioneer a new architectural style. On ICV at nine is the Radio Times Choice of the Day, a royal grand design. Filmed over a decade, this programme chronicles the plan by the then Prince of Wales to restore Dumfries House. The ambitious plan is to transform the dilapidated 18th century house into a self-sufficient gem. There's another chance to see Louis Theroux's talk with Rita Ora at 10.55 on BBC One. And the soaps. EastEnders is not on today. Emmerdale is on for an hour at 7. And Corrie is on also for an hour at 8. Thursday the 1st of December. So let's start with some food. Nigella's Cook, Eat, Repeat on BBC Two at 7.30pm. Nigella makes cherry flambe and frozen cheesecake ice cream. At 8pm on BBC Two is The Secret Genius of Modern Life. Hannah Fry looks this week at the electric car. Sales of the electric car are due to overtake those of petrol models. But this form of transport became popular more than a century ago. Hannah investigates why they fell out of favour. The second heat of MasterChef The Professionals is on BBC One at 8. Four of the semi-finals are tasked with opening a pop-up restaurant in an East of London microbrewery. At 9 on BBC Two, The English continues. In 1875, Thomas Trafford witnessed a violent massacre 
which triggered another tragedy in England, thereby setting Eli and Cornelia's destiny. At nine on BBC Four is the feature film The King's Speech, the Oscar-winning drama. After his father dies and then his brother abdicates, Prince Albert becomes king. But as he has a severe stammer, he enlists the help of an unconventional speech therapist to try to resolve his problem. And the soaps? EastEnders is on for an hour at 7pm, but neither Corrie nor Emmerdale are on tonight. Finally to Friday the 2nd of December. There's a new series on BBC One at 7, Granite Harbour. When the death of a local oil magnate stuns Aberdeen, rookie detective Davis Lindo is thrown in at the deep end. At 8 on Channel 4, Grayson's Art Club, The Exhibition. In this one-off special, cameras follow Grayson Perry's third national exhibition, held this time in Birmingham. The third visit this week to MasterChef, The Professionals, is at 5 past 9 on BBC One. The next four chefs head over to a warehouse to adapt their fine dining style to the dynamic and cutting-edge food of the pop-up scene. Also at nine on BBC Two is the second part of Agatha Christie, Lucy Worsley on the Mystery Queen. Lucy looks at the disappearance of Christie in 1926, when she reappeared in Harrogate, claiming to have lost her memory. At 9.15 on ITV, it'll be alright on the night. Debbie Williams with another selection of outtakes from famous programmes. I hope you find something of interest in my selection this week. TNF Soundings 